And we are live. Hello. Welcome to Beyond the Fundamentals. In this video, we're going to be in Acts 14, and we're going to talk about a concept of de-individuation. De-individuation is a word that I learned myself just a couple of weeks ago, and it explains a whole bunch of things. If you think that's a large word, and you're like, Kevin, you're using large words, I'm, I'm setting aside this entire episode just to talk about this concept. So you should know this large word by the time we're finished talking. <laughs> also, when we revamp the website, we're going to have a list of Kevin's vocabulary words or FSI vocabulary words, something like that, to where people can go quickly look up some of the lingo that we use here that is unlike what you might hear elsewhere. If you like what you hear on this channel and you like what you're getting on this channel, we invite you to support the channel financially. The details to do so are in the description below. We could not do this without you. And if you want to see this content continue and continue ad-free, we invite you to take part in it. And thanks to everybody who has generous, generously supported us so far and especially recently. <clears throat> um, when we're talking about de-individuation, the reason this seems important to me is because as I look into it, I've the only reason I want to share it with you is because I notice that this particular issue, in my opinion, is rife throughout professing Christendom. And it's something that you need to know about so that you can do something about it and not be afflicted with this issue, with the negatives of this issue, okay? You recognize the negatives and the positives, and you can recognize this kind of thing elsewhere, all right? So I want to take you to a text of Scripture where, you know, on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Acts. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and look at the book of Acts and see where we are here. We'll make both of these things smooth. They're traveling around. Who's they? Paul is on his missionary journey, which you would call your first missionary journey. And he's traveling around, and they were at Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. And the, and the area is called Lyconia. Okay? That's the area. Like, like I would say uh, Louisiana, as opposed to Baton Rouge. Okay? That's the re like the state, the region, the area. Okay? And then Pamphylia is down here. So that's the area. And then there are these cities, Antioch, Pisidia, which is not the same as Antioch, Syria. Okay? Two Antiochs in the Bible. You always got to understand which one's which. Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And then you notice there's some double arrows here because they go out to Derby and then they turn around and come back. Paul is from Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus. So he's not too far from his hometown. He's probably familiar with these areas, probably has a burden for these people, that sort of thing. Yes, everybody. Uh, happy Mother's Day to everybody that's out there and thanks for joining us so they're traveling around and they were aware of it and they what are they aware of there's people Jews traveling around trying to stone them so they became aware of it and they fled into Lystra and Derby the cities of Laconia and unto the region that lieth round about and there they preached the gospel and there sat a certain man at Lystra impotent at his feet being crippled from his mother's womb who never had walked the same heard Paul speak who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leapt and walked. Leaped and walked. And when the people saw that, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Now here is de-individuation number one. Um, 
everyone starts chanting this thing or saying this thing and it's like everyone jumps in on the bandwagon. You might call this thing bandwagoning. Like, there, And there are acute and chronic versions of de-individuation, which we're also going to talk about. And this seems to be an acute version of it. And they called Barnabas and Jupiter... Uh, they called Barnabas, Jupiter, and Paul Mercurius, Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. Mercury is where the word hermeneutics for biblical interpretation comes from. I forget which one's Roman and which one's Greek, but um, the Hermes, I think that's Greek, is the version of Mercury, and that is to speak on behalf of or to interpret something, and that's why hermeneutics okay, is where that comes from. It'd be Mercury. Mercury and Hermes are, you know, course uh, counterparts. Same, different names for the same idea. Then the priests of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands into the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. It's interesting, you know, the priests of Jupiter. Um, when, when Rome appropriated Christian terminology for its paganism, which became known as the Catholic Church, they did the same thing, except they did it with Peter. The, sta the statue of Jupiter and the, the uh, I don't know, the, the relicario or whatever, the, uh, the shrine to Jupiter became the shrine to Peter. And the statue to Jupiter became, Jupiter became Peter. They just, they just reappropriated everything else and renamed, and, uh, renamed all the iconography to something that was politically expedient. And then voila, you have the Catholic Church. When the apostles and Barnabas heard of it, they rent their clothes. So they, which, so the priest of Jupiter, which is before their city, brought oxen and garlands and gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. And when the apostles Barnabas heard of it, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying. And notice all the people are all the people are on board with this, right? Are they are they employing any of their own sense making? Probably not. They're just bandwagoning this big acute thing. Hey, the gods have come down in the likeness of men, right? And saying, Sir, why do ye these things? We are also men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness, and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And when these say, when with these sayings scarce restrained they the people. They, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. In other words, just barely, just barely, barely. <laughs> now, notice the flip. Now, you would say if they want to sacrifice to you and they think you're a god in the likeness of men, you would say that's a positive reaction, all right? Herod was, you know, arguably killed for accepting that kind of attention back in chapter 12. Um, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people now, look at that. Look how quick that is. Look how quick this just throws it. How long did that take? How long did it take them to persuade the people? So the people were all for them. They think they're gods. Then they're all against them, and they're ready for them to be stoned. It's, it's complete polarization. It's black and white. In, uh, in cluster B personality disorders, they call this splitting. Okay, uh, Often a person with a cluster B personality disorder, like a, per, a borderline personality disorder, for example, um, a person cannot perceive any gray area. They are either all evil or all good. And they're in a pedestal or they are the wickedest thing on the planet Earth. And religion will cause you to mimic this flaw of those kinds of personality disorders. I remember when I was a kid, 
In other words, it's like, especially in my kid's mindset, I remember with my brother sitting in a car waiting for my parents to come out and we were sitting there people watching with the windows down, right? And we saw, if we saw a guy with a clean cut haircut, we assumed that they might be Christian. And a guy with long hair, we thought that they were probably going to hell. If we saw a guy with a cigarette, they were definitely bad. If we saw a guy with a 12-pack of Budweiser, they were definitely bad people. It was impossible to have a beer and and also be good in other areas of your life. You see, it was impossible to smoke a cigarette, but but generally be a decent person otherwise. Every, it was like one little thing that was on the naughty list made you evil, and you were completely evil, and there was no other way to see it. And this kind of thinking persisted, you think, well, you were a kid. Well, this kind of thinking persisted um, more or less to varying degrees into my young adulthood, all right? And I wasn't disabused of it till much later than I uh, would like to admit. <laughs> so, <clears throat> this splitting thing. And you have these guys doing this splitting thing. They're all either all, they're gods or they're worthy of being stoned. There is no, hey, these guys have something new to say and maybe I disagree or agree, but they're otherwise dis decent folks and I have no reason to kill them, right? There's no gray area. There's <laughs> nothing like that. <laughs> Don't you have friends that uh, do things that aren't exactly your favorite thing, but you still get along with them anyway. Maybe they have hobbies that you don't really care for, but you still get along with them anyway. Or maybe they have beliefs or practices that you don't really care for. People who are doing splitting, well, once you make it to the bad side, there's like no redemption. There's like no coming back. And so you can think, uh, think also of like woke wokeism and CRT critical race theory. There is, there is no redemption there, or the D-I-E, diversity, inclusion, and, and equity, that kind of thing. And they don't mean equality by equity. Equality is equal opportunity. Equity is equal outcomes, okay, which is chopping everybody off at the knees who has any kind of ambition to make you match those who don't, all right? And this is not a good thing. So you take D-I-E or D-E-I, whatever that's called, CRT, critical race theory, and wokeism, that kind of thinking, and they're... In there, basically, if you are if you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male, you know, then you are the devil, and there is no redemption. There is no way you can redeem yourself. You can just the only thing you can do is acknowledge and acquiesce your devilment and just shut up and let everybody else do the talking. That's that's the only thing you can do. It's um it's its own religion, which is interesting because. You know, James Lindsay and some other people, Charlie Kirk, have come out and they have identified this. They have identified wokeism and CRT as having all the attributes of a religion, but not claiming to be one. But it has its same concept of original sin, and it, and it follows kind of the thought process of Calvinism a lot. And seeing that, being aware of that, you know, we deal with Calvinism a lot on this channel. Um, being aware of that helped me realize something about Calvinism, too. Calvinism is also its own separate religion, but the reason it's hard to recognize that is because it has nested itself within a pre-existing religion. In other words, CRT and wokeism is claiming to be a secular non-religious thing, and it's kind of a revelation to realize that, oh, this is following all the patterns of religious thought. 
But when, when you realize that the same thing is going on with Calvinism, it is actually a distinct religion embedding itself in another one, which disguises the fact that its religiosity is distinctive from the religiosity of Christianity. It's like two different complete religions. And when you realize that, it really opens up, you know, like Minesweeper when you hit that one and all the little, all the little panels open up. That's what it's like when you realize that. It is, a, it is its own distinctive religion embedded like a parasite within another one. And, when, and it's got its own concept of sin, which is different from, the, from Christianity's. Everything is different. But they use all the same terminology. So it's very, very confusing. And so people with, who are de-individuating, <laughs> de-individuation, people who are doing this are also, they're following along the same kind of pattern of, of uh, it's basically kind of like a religion. It has its own belief systems, its own set of ethics, and you you outsource whatever you're doing personally for this thing. So there came thither Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Where are we? Antioch and Iconium. Okay. And we're in Lystra. And there came thither Jews. Um, ha- who persuaded the people? Okay. Now what happened there? Persuading people of what? Propositions. Now in yesterday's video, which... I don't know if you're watching this one, if you saw it or not, but we pointed out some things in the book of John where Jesus is not relying on propositions, but he's actually relying on the works doing the talking. He says, if you believe not what I've told you, believe me for my works sake, which I do, I do the works that my father told me to do. Works are, are not propositions. You know, you have the four kinds of knowing, right? And... <clears throat> I might be able to show this real quick. I'm pretty sure I have this somewhere. So the four kinds of knowing are participatory knowing, perspectival knowing, procedural knowing, right? So what happens when you're persuading somebody, when you're in debate space, when you're in uh, earnest space, you have these kinds of knowing. Jesus had these kinds of knowings, participatory, perspectival, and procedural. When somebody is in debate space, when they are persuading somebody, it's almost strictly propositional, okay? Propositions are empty and puffed up if they are not pointing to all they can do is point. All propositions are is signifiers to something else. Propositions aren't real. You say, I don't believe you. It doesn't matter if you believe me. Imagine listening to somebody speaking a foreign language that you don't know. That means nothing to you because there's no agreement between you and that person about what those sounds are pointing to. You see? It means something to them. doesn't mean anything to you. see? So as far as you are concerned, those sounds, those words aren't pointing to anything that you can visualize. But then if they start speaking a language you understand and they say something like, I went swimming in a pool, you can think of a pool because you've seen pools before, you see? And that word pool is pointing toward memories of participatory experience you have with having seen pools, having been in pools, having swam in pools, you see? So a word only means something if it points to something that is procedural, perspectival, or participatory. But if you are in debate mode, you throw all this away, basically, probably without realizing it, and you sacrifice all of that to just propositional knowing. And when the Bible says, knowledge puffeth up, what the idea there is that proposition-only versions of knowing is 
<laughs> is puffing you up because you have a bunch of words that are all semantically disambiguated, but they don't point at anything real. They don't point at anything participatory, perspectival, or procedure. I was thinking the other day while I was eating lunch, somebody came up to me and they said, Kevin, what do you think is real? I think my answer would be something like, I think this sandwich is real. <laughs> you know, people want to get all, you know, violating Colossians 2.18, imagining all these metaphysical things which they've never seen and experienced. Okay, I can acknowledge what Scripture says about certain things, but I cannot take you beyond that as far as my own experience is concerned. You have to wrestle with that stuff yourself. Okay? So, what are they doing? These are the kind of people who are not... Uh, they're, they're trying to do something that is nefarious. When somebody is trying to persuade you at the propositional level, they're being nefarious. Now, I used to sell rainbow vacuum cleaners, and I was trying to persuade people to buy a rainbow vacuum cleaner. But what I would do is I would pull the thing out, and I didn't do this for very long. I, I think I showed the thing four times, and then on the fourth one, somebody worked for a technology company, New Horizons, and then he wanted me to come work for him. So <laughs> I got hired to go work for somebody else on my fourth showing. But I showed, this was like back in the year 2000. Or 2001, maybe. I can't remember. It's 2001. Because while I was getting trained for this, on the way to the training is when 9-11 happened. So that tells you when that happened. Interesting times. I was in the National Guard at the time. Anyway, what we would do is we... I, yeah, I'm trying to persuade you to buy this thing, but I'm also... I'm pulling it out and I'm demonstrating it for you. I'm showing. I'm letting you handle it. I'm vacuuming up dirt out of your carpet. And I'm showing you how much dirt I'm getting out of your carpet after your vacuum cleaner did it. So I'm, I'm trying to persuade, but I'm also using participatory, perspectival, and procedural re ways to do that so that all my words that I'm using are actually pointing towards something that is real that they can see, observe, and demonstrate. Now what's going on here? They're persuading these guys of what? What did Paul and uh, Barnabas ever do to these guys? Nothing. They just showed up with information. And what do they do? They stone him. Having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. And now, now we don't know that he's dead there. The, the Bible never says that he's dead. It just says they're supposing that he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Now, I personally don't know how you could be stoned and just get up and walk away. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you look up stoning, like the way they do it now, they, have a, they dig a hole and they put you in it up to about your west or, uh, waist or torso region, and you're standing there and your hands are tied behind your back and they throw stones at you until you die. And there's other ways where they lay heavy stones on people. And one of the key components of stoning that is crucial to this concept that we're looking at is stoning. It's not like there's one person flipping the switch on the electric chair. You see, it's a group thing. It's almost like if you think of the riots and stuff in Milwaukee and that kind of thing that have been going on where you have a whole bunch of people throwing bricks through windows and burning buildings and destroying cars. You have a whole bunch of people acting. This de-individuation kind of thing happens. Stoning is the perfect crime for de-individuation because there are all kinds of people involved 
and there is no single individual. Can, can, any, can any single rock thrower, like if you were to throw a rock at somebody right now, um, you, you, could get, you could go to jail for assault, but you probably wouldn't go to jail for murder or attempted murder if you just threw a rock at somebody, or even several rocks at somebody, you know? You'd probably just go to jail for assault. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know. Don't go throwing rocks at people and use that as an expectation of what to expect from your legal system. But um, all these, they, they have the intent for the guy to die when you stone somebody, but no one person is doing all of the killing. They're, they're kind of you know, diffusing, they're diffusing the killing act out to a lot of people. So nobody has to own the fact that he died. Well, I didn't kill him. All I did was throw a rock at him, you see? And it's uh, one, of those, one of those perfect kind of diffusing kind of crimes where a whole bunch of people join in with their pitchfork and all that. And you could think of things like, uh, like lynchings and witch hunts, just horrible things that have happened in the past. And maybe some things like that are also happening today. I think they do. Uh, like lynchings and witch hunts where a bunch of people come together. And this, when you say uh, the, they're coming out with the pitchforks, what, that's another way of saying de-individuation. All these people riled up. You can get a mob worked up to do something. Now, let's dig into this concept of de-individuation. Okay? What is happening here? And remember, the reason that I'm telling you, the reason that I'm telling you about this is because I think that we are infected. We as Christians are infected with this kind of thing. Okay? De-individuation is... A couple of definitions here. Here's one from uh, Wikipedia. Deindividuation is a concept in social psychology, and you could say group studies. I, I know a lot of you guys are afraid of the word psychology, and that's because you are a victim of deindividuation, and you have no sovereignty around the word or study of psychology, and you're insecure and afraid. You see? So as soon as you see the word psychology or philosophy and your red flags go up, it's because you have no personal sovereignty. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain all this. You have no personal sovereignty or agency in the domain of your own experience. This is related to your responsibility and your capacity to have, to have agency. So what is that? What is sovereignty? I'm not using sovereignty as you see it in theology, okay? I'm using the word sovereignty like a sane person would use it. And basically, it is your ability to, when you intend for something to happen, it happens, okay? If you intend to juggle three balls and you do it successfully, then you have the, at least that degree of sovereignty in doing that, okay? So it has to do with skill level and your ability to control a, an arena so that no outside influences negatively impact what you're trying to accomplish, okay? So the ability to bring about the thing that you're trying to accomplish. Um, that's what we're looking at. So when you, when, and, and sometimes me and uh, some other people from FSI, we, we look at the chat section and you can tell by the kind of chats that people, and, and the kind of guests that people are afraid of, how de-individualized they are, and we'll, I'll talk more about this as we go. Let me explain some of this, and you'll, hopefully you'll start to see some of it coming through, uh, where people are so insecure that they have to outsource to some kind of group. They're so insecure with their own personal values and morals and ability to make sense of things 
that they have to outsource to some kind of group. And you'll see that show up when Calvinists are like, who else in church history believe like you do? They do not have the capacity. They are insecure about their own capacity. They have to, they have to think, they have to outsource to a group mentality because they, cannot, they are not sovereign on their own in order to make sense of something on their own. When they're asking a question like that. So de-individuation is a concept in social psychology and, and social is society, people, more than one person, right? And they could differentiate between a community and a society. And then psychology is the mind or psyche, suke is the biblical word for the word soul, okay? So study of the soul is really what that word means. Social study of the soul. That is generally thought of as, or the study of the mind, you know, that is generally thought of as the loss, listen to this, the loss of self-awareness in groups. So you're going to lose the capacity for reflexivity, to, to reflect back on your own thought processes. Although this is a matter of contention, sociologists also study the phenomenon of de-individuation, but the level of analysis is somewhat different. Now that's straight from Wikipedia. Now there's another one over here. If you Google it, you get both of these. De-individuation is a phenomenon in which people engage in seemingly impulsive, deviant, and sometimes violent acts like stoning Paul um, in situations in which they believe they cannot personally be identified. Okay? Now that's not the only way. Because it can also be a positive thing or a neutral thing. For example, when they were trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods in the form of man, that was also de-individuation. Okay? And they're not necessarily trying to hurt them, they, but they have outsourced the mentality to the group mentality. Okay? Now the term, um, where do I go with this? The term was originated in 1952. So way back in 1895, there's a guy named Gustave Le Bon. There's, there's like a six-minute video on this you can watch. And he wrote a book. He wrote a book called The Crowd in 1895. Gustave Le Bon did a study of the popular mind. That's all right. And more recently, Ann Coulter wrote a book called Demonic and showed how the mob replicates the way the demon acts in Mark chapter 5, which we'll look at it in a second. So you could say you could say that this book is a treatise on de-individuation as well, okay? And that's why I bring that up. And it happens to be like the only Ann Coulter book that I don't have sitting over here on my shelf. Otherwise, I would wave it around as one of my props over here because I have a few props. But this book on the left is the one I'm talking about right here. This book got people thinking. It was written in 1895. And so by 1952, these three fellows are expanding on Le Bon's ideas. Leon Fessinger, Albert Pepitone, and Theodore Newcomb. Okay? So they're expanding on this idea. And these three guys originate this turn of de-individuation. And sometimes you'll see the turn as de-individualation. All right? And that is more syllables. It's already enough syllables, so I, I'm using the shorter version on purpose. But yeah, some people do call it de-individualation. It's is coined by these guys expanding on Le Bon's work from 1895 up to 1952 is when these guys did this. So what happens is 
people tend to take on the attributes of a group that they would not take on as an individual. Like they wouldn't stone Paul by themselves. They wouldn't throw bricks through windows by themselves. But if there's a whole bunch of people doing it, they will. Or this happens a lot when somebody is bullying somebody or uh, they, you know, you see, see these videos of these uh, racial attacks. Like a whole bunch of uh, people, like a whole bunch of black people are attacking a white person, right? Now, if you encountered one, they probably wouldn't do it. But as a group, there's more dangerous. And it goes the other way too, okay? You see that kind of thing happening. That people will do something as a group that they would never do as an individual. Now, I'm not saying people won't do things like that as an individual because there are some people out there. But there are some people who would never do it as an individual but would do it as a group. And you find them joining in, kicking the person and everything else. So what happens is you lose a, a strong sense of self and identity and you outsource that to the, with the group's mentality even if it clashes with your own. So you're, what happens is you don't have a strong sense of self. When I see people in the chat and in YouTube comments and in emails complaining about words that we're using, like, like the word philosophy scares them, they don't have a sense, strong sense of self. And they have identified themselves with a group that has denigrated the concept of philosophy, usually by misapplying Colossians 2.8 or something like that. And they feel unsafe because they have no personal sovereignty. They have no personal identity outside the group when it comes to assessing things that use that word. So then they get scared. Okay? Or the word psychology. There's, you know, when, when people get afraid of the buzzwords that we're using here. Yeah. Somebody said, yeah, it's just a lot easier to do it as a group. Yes. So they become, oh, typo here, that what happens is they become non-reflexive. Now you could, say, you could think of the word reflective, and that is the ability to turn back around and look at yourself. What am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? And let me see, um, I usually have a pair of glasses up here, but I guess I don't right now. I guess I have them in all the other places. But if you had a pair of glasses, and um, say you're, the lens that you're looking through, say you are a dispensationalist or a Calvinist, and you put these lens on, you can, you can look through these lenses. Well, you need to be reflexive of a couple of things. You need to be able to take the lenses off and look at those lenses and examine those to see if they are good lenses in the first place. And also, you need to reflexively look back at yourself and look at how, how, much, how much agency or sovereignty you have at picking out lenses. Okay, How good is that going? What is your salience and relevance landscape? Um, I think I heard John Verveke say recently that, your, that relevance is the is the key component of transjectivism. What is transjectivism? You have subjectivism, what things are to me. You have objectivism, what things are like to uh, a third party that can be verified by a third party using, using means. But there are certain things that are transjective, like I can't say that this book is graspable because... It has to do with the way the book is shaped and the way my hand is shaped. They have to come together. Okay? And it's not graspable to say a cat like it is to me. 
it has to do with the way it's shaped. And so there's something that comes together. There's like a dual subjectivity, if you will. A recognition of a dual subjectivity is, a, is maybe another way to say that. There's a long, long comment here. Somebody said, I have no idea what this is going to say, but this is why many pastors can't even engage in theological conversations. Not only are they part of groupthink, they see themselves as the very leaders who must never be questioned. At the peril of the integrity of the whole group, there are a few rare gems, but many are just theology parrots. This is exactly correct. A very good comment here. They have no real meat for hungry seekers, just canned predictable sound bites. That's, that's a very good comment there. It's absolutely spot on. So what happens is you become non-reflexive. You don't have the ability to look at the lens that you're looking through and evaluate it, and you don't have the ability to evaluate yourself for how you're picking out lenses in the first place or how you're assessing your salience landscape so that you can correctly pick out what's relevant and that associates that, that refle- uh, is related to how you are oriented, which is tied to what you are aimed at. All right? So what happens is you have normally inhibited behavior, like normally you wouldn't stone some yeah forging beyond belief says dungeons and dragons theology right it's like a bunch of a bunch of nerds sitting around saying a bunch of things that don't matter and they don't actually affect they don't actually have any impact out in the real world all right and that's why i think there's a lot of mental health crisis going on in christianity is because we've been pushing this terminologically self-enclosed paradigm which is not corresponding with reality and then when people have to face reality, they become nihilistic because they have no tools with which they can face reality. They've been in this <clears throat> Dungeons and Dragons scenario all their life. And when they actually have to step outside of it and, and go to Walmart and see the ambulance and all that stuff, they, they don't know what to do. And when, it, and when it comes to making decisions, they start saying things like, I don't even know why I'm here. I guess I should just die. All right. That's, that's what modern Christianity is producing. It's producing people like that who have no agency and become nihilistic when they have to face the real world. When they get a wake-up call, they have no recourse they can take because they're not equipped to have any recourse. So what I want this to stand out to you, when I say normally inhibited behavior, like intoxication. Yes, like intoxication. So your association with a group, and it could be short-term, could be long-term, could be a crowd that forms spontaneously or at a protest or something like that, <laughs> or it could be like a chronic thing, like you're a member of, the, of a church or something. That's, that's what I think is going on with a lot of professing Christians. You're a member of the church, and you're doing normally inhibited behavior because you're intoxicated by the identity with the group. And you don't have your own morals and values. You don't even know what they are, right? And so it's important to know what your own morals and values are so that you can recognize when a group is pulling you away from them. Then there's limbic system hijacking, which would make you uh, emotionally very excited or emotionally very angry, something like that, because something triggers you to be very emotionally angry and, and exercise your wrath on something. And then like an ideology, like Christian denominations, or like CRT, or wokeism, or something, or or global warming alarmism, or uh, people on either side of the abortion debate, something like that. Like ideology, it replicates symptoms of personality disorders. Now, 
um, Forging Beyond Belief said, yes, we need a video. We need a video specifically on that Christian faith crisis. Yes. And I would invite you and anybody else to start making notes on that. Let's, let's do that. Let's put something together and let's put a video together on this. Because I, I, had, I heard a statement was coming out of my mouth recently that I couldn't believe I was saying. <coughs> and I <coughs> basically is this. Propositional Christianity has, is doing, is causing more harm than it is helping. It's causing more problematic people who are spuriously interactive and they can't interact with people in good faith and they're more dysfunctional. It's causing more dysfunctional people than it is producing well-adjusted people. Why is that? Okay, there's a big problem in modern Christianity where it, we are not producing good fruit, all right? And you can, you can just look at, not today seems like it's pretty good, but sometimes you can just look at the chat in YouTube and you can see we got all kinds of problems. And we're causing it. We propositional Christianity is causing the problems. We we say Jesus is the answer to the problems. You need peace, find Jesus. No, there's people who have Jesus in their life that have no answers and that have no peace. And they've had propositional Jesus in their life all their life. Now, there's a word that I think should stand out to you. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. The one of the videos I watched said there's been at least one death from hazing every year since 1972. What is hazing? It's when, uh, like, uh, initiation rites for a fraternity or a sorority or something like that. And they make people do silly, crazy, stupid, or gross things. Uh, I was involved in some hazing rituals when I was in college. And uh, we had, <laughs> one of them was just gross. Like, we had to take peanuts and grape bubblegum. And chew it up and then transfer that to everybody's mouth who is in the group, you know, without using our hands. So that's kind of gross, right? Gross. Forging Beyond Belief says it's causing idiosyncratic Christian nihilism. I want you to remember all these terms because you're, uh, these are well worded. <clears throat> so. Another thing we did was called Bake the Cake it's the same for the same organization where uh, you're basically down in push-up position and people pelt you with the, <laughs> with the ingredients to bake a cake with, like eggs and flour and sugar. They just pelt you with stuff like that um, and kick you in the ribs. And you have to stay in the push-up position for, I think, for two minutes, something like that, while they do that to you. So things like that. Hazing, all right? So... <laughs> And then my dad had some stories of some things they did in the Navy. Like there's certain things that they do if you're crossing the Arctic Circle for the first time. All the people who have never done it before, you have to go through this ceremony, right? And so I don't remember enough of that to try to describe it, but it was definitely hazing. And sometimes this kind of stuff can be all in good fun. And sometimes it can get dangerous. And sometimes it, people can die. And you find yourself acting in a group when you're trying to be mean to these you know, pledges uh, and put them through some kind of ringer there, you find yourself going a little too far, especially when alcohol is involved with some of these things. Some people go too far. So the crowd's mentality is, uh, is the, these thoughts are kind of spurious here, but I'm trying to introduce you to all these thoughts. The crowd's mentality typically is intellectually weak, and that's you find that in Christianity a lot. It's very emotional, 
and it takes you down to action at a primitive level. Okay, in other words, there's a lot of hypothalamic things going on rather than your higher, higher mental functions. Okay, sometimes I think you know your hypothalamic urges in your in your brain are the things that cause you to seek out the things that you need, want, and desire in your impulses. Like you're thirsty, you're hungry, or you're tired. You need to you need to you know go take a nap or go to sleep, go to bed, or you need to mate. Those kinds of things you have; these are all hypothalamic urges. And sometimes I think when the Bible is talking about the carnal person, or or the natural man, we tend to religify these things too much, and we get superstitious about it. And when I look at the passages, like it saved people who are carnal and natural. And I think it's like what we would what we might say today is your your animalistic urges. I think it's another way of just saying. People who have not come to the maturity level where they can set their hypothalamic urges aside so that they can focus on something more important. Like, can you sit in a lecture, even though you're a little hungry and maybe you have to use the bathroom, can you sit in a lecture and wait till it's over before you go get something to eat and use the restroom? Can you do that? Okay, if you have higher mental capacities, you can do that. If you're more natural and more carnal, you put those things first and you're not able to set them aside in order to pursue something that is in the long term a little more important than those kinds of things. Okay. Now, reasons. Some of the reasons for deindividuation is you have diffusion of responsibility. This is called the bystander effect. And the idea is that everyone assumes that someone else is more responsible for them taking action. Now, this is one of the reasons. If you've ever had CPR training, this is one of the things they tell you to do. They tell you to run up to the victim that you're going to help and before you start doing anything you pick somebody you pick a very specific person and you tell them to call 911 so first of all you have to take responsibility i'm going to go try to administer CPR to try to save this person but at the same time i'm going to delegate somebody else to go call 911 because this because of the diffusion of responsibility you have to train people to actually, if they know CPR, to take action to go stand up and to delegate. I'm going to try to help this person. You go call 911, that kind of thing. So everyone assumes, so that portion of that instruction is a recognition of this effect, the diffusion of responsibility. All right. Everyone assumes that somebody else is more responsible than them for taking the action. Maybe somebody nearby is stronger than you. Maybe you see a fight break out, right? And maybe there's other people who are closer to the fight or uh, there's somebody who's stronger than you that you think should step in, something like that. Or the really bad one is sometimes, like I saw a video one time of a, uh, I saw a video of, there was a teacher at a school, some kind of school, and they were doing a presentation and all the parents were there. And one of the parents, and it was a, it was an Arabic guy. I don't know if it's culture or whatever, but he somehow thought it was okay to walk up on stage and fuss at the teacher for how poorly she was raising or how poorly she of a job he thought she was doing, and started slapping her and slapped her several times, slapped her out of her chair, and uh, just kept yelling at her and hitting her. And nobody stopped him. It's out in front of a. It's out in front of <laughs> this whole crowd of people, bunch of parents in the United States. And this guy's up on stage, just beating this woman senseless, 
and yelling and fussing at her and nobody's stopping him. The bystander effect. You would think that somebody would jump up and restrain this guy. Nobody did. Um, Flight 93 is an example of somebody overcoming the diffusion of responsibility. So the planes that were hijacked that ran into the Twin Towers, there's two planes, <clears throat> and then the ones that ran into the Pentagon, there's three planes. Well, there was another plane that was going back you know, 9-11. After those happened, Flight 93 was aimed at running into something too, United 93, but the people who realized it, so in the other three flights, diffusion of responsibility happened. Oh, we're being hijacked. Who's going to do something about it? Nobody took responsibility to do something about it, okay? But in Flight 93, they took responsibility to do something about it, and they wound up saving the lives of whatever they were going to go crash into. I forget what they're going to go crash into. And if the other people on the other three planes had done that, they would have saved, you know, 3,000 lives. And, and they would have lost just the people on the plane. But diffusion of responsibility. Anonymity. Without identification means without responsibility. Why some people like to go to a big church rather than a small church. Because you can just kind of go and sit there and be anonymous. And if you're anonymous and nobody knows who you are, it's not my responsibility that a brick was thrown through that window, even though I picked it up and threw it. In chapter 10 of Fowler's book on Stages of Faith, he talks about uh, perspectival awareness of where two different people, you can understand somebody else's awareness of the same object as you, but from a different angle, right? Well, then you turn that around to where you start, as you grow and develop, you start to become aware of the other person's perception of you. And you start to perform, you start to form the version of you that you perceive them to be perceiving. Okay. And then they start to do that with you. Well, when you are anonymous, when you're in a large crowd, you understand that nobody is making a specific personal opinion of you. They are making one of the crowd. You are just one of the crowd. So you're safe from that individualized opinion making from a third party observer. So since you're safe from that, people only have an opinion of the crowd rather than any individual in the crowd. Now you can throw bricks through the window and set buildings on fire. Or you can um, yell and be mean at people online who, you know, that kind of thing. Carnal means of the five senses. Okay, that makes sense. Metacognition is thinking about one's thinking. Metacognition includes critical awareness of one's thinking and learning and oneself as a thinker and learner. Yep, so metacognition, like reflexive metacognition is a good thing to have. Carnal means of the five senses. So I appreciate these comments coming through. They help um, supplement what we're doing here. And then suggestibility. When people don't know what to do or say, they allow the group or the crowd to fill in the blanks. And a lot of people do that with theology. That's the reason I think apologetics exists as a discipline is because of suggestibility. Because suggestibility causes people in church to accept things like this without doing any research. And then you need to defend that, right? Well, you have no epistemic basis to defend it. So then you have to go do apologetics. You have to go study how to defend this thing that you accepted because of suggestibility rather than 
it being the actual result of an investigation that you conducted. Now, everyone will lie about that. They will say, well, I searched this out and I arrived at this conclusion. And they didn't. Okay? They had it, they had it put in their head. They, are, they had an intuitive, positive response toward it. And then they started finding reasons to justify it. That's, that's how it happens. Okay? And then they are abdicating responsibility for what they don't know. And they're remembering things incorrectly. Uh, they, w- what this will cause you to do, it will cause you to remember things incorrectly, it will cause you to change opinions of your beliefs, and it will cause you to act in certain ways that you uh, would never act in the past. Now, I've seen this happen with pre- people with personality disorders, where you can interact with them in, in one setting, and then in the very next setting, what just happened is completely different as you hear it back from them. Completely different. And then they gaslight you and make it sound like it's your problem. Like, you don't remember it correctly. Like, I, I think this just happened. And, and then you start getting kind of paranoid. You're like, well, I guess I, I guess I need to start recording all the conversations because this person can't remember them correctly. And so this suggestibility will cause you to do all kinds of things. And it'll cause you, like, when the police report comes up, everybody will tell the same lie. All this kind of thing goes on. When you're sitting in church, everybody's sitting there accepting what this preacher guy is saying. Now, there's... I come across a lot of people in, I get a lot of emails from people who are skeptical of what their pastor is saying, but by and large, most of the people, according to them, are just sitting there taking it. They're just sitting there taking it. I got an email from a lady a couple days, either yesterday or the day before, something like that, and they were, the pastor turned Calvinist. And the two people who recognized it, the two men who recognized it, confronted the pastor, it didn't go well, then they just left. Now they're gone. Now what about everybody else? Nobody else is doing anything about it? The diffusion of responsibility. No, are they the only two that recognized it? Do they just other people just so ignorant they don't know? If they're that ignorant so that they don't know, what kind of training have they been getting so far in church? Now, a couple other things. Some examples of this are like, there are some positive examples too. Deindividuation can actually be helpful if you're trying to do something else. Like hazing is a bad thing. Bad thing, you don't want that to happen. Running a marathon. You may have a lot of difficulty running 26.2 miles all by yourself, but if you're with a crowd of people who's also doing it, that may give you the energy and adrenaline to carry on and carry forward. So deindividuation can actually have a positive um, effect on you if you if you have the prior intent for it to be so and it's in a controlled environment where it's otherwise safe okay maybe a long day of volunteering where you're planting trees or taking food to homeless people something like that and it seems like a a long time if there's a group of people doing it with you you might tend to be able to stick it out longer okay when uh, uh, religious organizations um, de-individuation happens there and then when people go to war for religious ideology you could think of uh the, the Catholic Church and the Crusades, you could think of Islam, you could think of uh, ISIS, you know, that kind of thing, where people get worked up. And I think, you know, a lot of people who are professing Christians are de-individualized because of their identity with Christianity. Um, and then the Stanford Prison Experiment is something you need to look up. If you're not familiar with that, you definitely need to look that up. And what they did in that experiment is... They took 
average ordinary college students. They're all the same, more or less. All right, there's no, nothing differentiating them, and they just arbitrarily split them into two groups. And they said, "Here's the deal: you guys are prisoners, you guys are prison guards." And then they let them go at it for a certain number of days or weeks or however long it went. And what happened was, the guys who were the prison guards started treating the prisoners very inhumanely. Now, now remember, these guys are not actually criminals. They never actually did anything wrong. They're just, it's just an experiment to see how you would act differently in a different role, which brings you to role, which brings you to modality. How, what role are you operating in? Are you operating in the role of a, you know, a dispensationalist who there's a whole bunch of other dispensationalists and I kind of have my identity attached to that group through extended cognition? Okay, maybe you do. Or maybe I have the role of a father to my kids, or the role of a YouTube content creator to you, or the role of a husband to my wife. The role in which you're operating, and if you're operating in the role, and this whole, think of a, uh, think of a Nazi prison guard. Think about, it's basically the Stanford prison experiment. When you think that the people that are prisoners in your concentration camps aren't even human for whatever reason, think about how you would treat them. And... And there's also a book, I didn't put this on here, but there's a book called Ordinary Men that Jordan Peterson talks about a lot. And I have not read it yet, but it, it it's an account, from what I understand, of average ordinary people who were conditioned so that they would go commit these horrible atrocities on people, like taking, taking a, a naked pregnant woman out and shooting her. Um, why would you do that? You know, they would never really do that as an individual on their own before being exposed to this group. But as a group, they got them to do these things. Horrible things that can happen in de-individuation. And I would say, let's see, what else do I have? Understanding and awareness. What I want us to do is I want to make this easier to recognize and I want to step aside. I want you to step aside when you see things going against your individual values and morals. Now I want to point something out in my other slide that you may notice. Say what is a common thread here that is a through line maybe of de-individuation? And I think, and maybe I'm wrong, and if you're in the chat, I want you to now analyze this with me because this is kind of a new concept to me and I'm talking, I'm talking with you about it and we can explore it together. When you look at the reasons, let me come over here so you can see this better. Look at the words that we see. Diffusion of what? Responsibility. Everyone that assumes someone else is what? More responsible than them. Anonymity without identification means you are without what? Responsibility. Suggestibility. When people don't know what to say or do, they allow the group or crowd to fill in the blanks and they abdicate what? Responsibility for what they don't know. The through line here, I think, is responsibility. How responsible are you for your own values and morals and how much how much sovereignty do you have in the capacity to recognize when association with something else either acute or chronic long term or short short term is drawing you away from your own personal values and morals now there are some conditions in 
humanity, and I am not an expert on what I'm about to talk about here, but there are some conditions that people have in relationships. Um, some people have dependency issues. Some people have attachment issues, all right? And there are personality disorders. And my, my understanding of this is that the same kind of attachment issues you can have in a relationship, like I always have to be in a relationship. I know, I know somebody right now, I, can, I could tell you their name, which I'm not going to do. I know somebody right now who is not their own thing. They don't have their own hobbies. They don't have their own identity. If, you, if you're, what is this person about? You could not say. But the only thing that really identifies them is that they're always with something. Either they're always very active in a church or they're always with a, a partner and they don't know what to do when they're by themselves. And they're just always, I am <laughs> just always with somebody. And that's really what their identity is. And this person that I have in mind is, is capable. They can do things. But uh, as, as an individual, what, are, what do they represent as an individual? And I can think back, uh, there's a lot of suggestibility that's been going on all this person's life where they just kind of adapt to whatever environment they're in or whoever they're with. That person's preferences tends to dominate and they just fill the gaps in there and they just become part of that thing, right? I don't want people to become that. So... I so these attachment issues that people have and dependency issues what can happen is you can just as a person can be dependent on another person and they don't have an identity of their own they can also be dependent on a group they can have attachment issues and dependency issues with a group to where they don't have any agency or sovereignty outside that group deciding something for them Now, what I noticed, <clears throat> what I've been noticing in Christianity a lot is that the ideology, the ideological versions of Christianity, which closely correlates with proposition-centric versions of Christianity. What do, what do I mean by that? When I say proposition-centric, what on earth are you talking about, Kevin? I'm talking about versions of Christianity that pretty much almost 100% exist here. They're all like here. Somebody just said in the comments, they, they project their self-worth on how they feel if they are, uh, how worthy they feel they are to others. Yeah, that kind of thing. So proposition-centric Christianity is so focused on propositional knowing, just a bunch of propositions, a bunch of, bunch of nonsense, okay, that there is no connection to these kinds of things. And proposition-centric Christianity, in my opinion, tends to... Let me, let me see if I can um, show you some of these, okay? Tends to mimic personality disorders. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to create another slide. And I'm going to show you some of these things, some things that I see. So cluster A personality disorders. And I, I look through these and I notice what happens. A pervasive distrust and suspicion of others and their motives. A lot of fundamentalist Christians are like that. If you say the word psychology or philosophy, uh, one guy 
tried to map me to something evil for using the word sense-making. Tried to map me to something evil just for sense-making. He also, I have a video called Afar, which is, and this is my own analysis. I've, I did not get this from anywhere, but I have a video where I show how attachment to something in having mode leads to fear, which leads to anger, which leads to resentment and the bitterness of like Ephesians 4.32 that you don't want to have. Ephesians 4.30.32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Well, bitterness, resentment, comes from being anger and you are angry because something that you feared uh, was disrupted and something that you were feared is attached is associated with something you were attached to in the first place. You wouldn't be a fear. You wouldn't be afraid if you weren't attached in the wrong way to something. Okay. So what I find this guy and and just because I have this acronym afar and he was able to do some research and he found it somewhere else and said that I got it from there. I did not get it from there. I came up with that on my own. So there's convergence. Apparently, somebody else thinks the same thing. So he's lying about that. But this this pervasive distrust and suspicion of others and their motives. Like I can't, and I'm finding it difficult to have guests on this channel who have divergent thinking that aren't like the, the standard fundamentalist way of thinking. And people get all upset about it. Okay, And it, they're, they're showing signs of personality disorders. An unjustified belief that others are trying to harm or deceive you. An unjustified suspicion of the loyalty or trustworthiness of others. Hesitancy to confide in others due to unreasonable fear that others will use the information against you. Now, this is interesting to me because in the Christianity that I grew up with, when you confided in others, it was used against you multiple times. And so um i have a hesitancy to confide in other people because of the history that i've seen within christianity christians have treated me horrible uh, one of my atheist friends said there's uh there's no hate as strong as christian love <laughs> that's exactly right christian love is like the worst thing you can be exposed to They're like and i'm not talking about genuine christian love i'm talking about proposition centric kind of christian love that's the kind of you know not this kind of christian love that would be great talking about this kind of Christian love, all right? Uh, angry, hostile reactions to perceived slights or insults. We saw somebody react recently and call people in the chat a-holes who weren't even talking about the person who, were, who was a guest on the channel. Um, tendencies to hold grudges, un, unjustified recurrent suspicion that spouse or sexual partner is unfaithful, that kind of thing. Well, what are some other ones? So... Uh, probably two of these in one shot. These are still cluster A. Lack of interest in social or personal relationships, preferring to be alone, limited range of emotional expression, inability to take pleasure in most activities, inability to pick up normal social cues, appearance of being cold or indifferent to others, little or no interest. Uh, not all these are relative to what I'm trying to say, relate to what I'm trying to say here. Um... Peculiar dress, thinking, beliefs, speech or behavior, odd perceptual experiences, hearing, okay. Some of these may apply, some of these may not apply. Magical thinking. Uh, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Cluster B personality disorders. What do we have in 
think about seeing this within Christianity. Disregard for others' needs or feelings. You know, like the... <laughs> I heard somebody say, I think yesterday, if you want to know how to have meaning in your life, I think maybe Mark Grove said this, if you want to know how to have meaning in your life, think of the thing that is most heartbreaking to you and figure out how to help other people solve that. What I'm doing on this channel, I've experienced a lot of heartbreak, and I'm trying to help other people figure out how to avoid that so that they don't have to go through it. And as I'm exploring so that we can do that better, because propositional Christianity that everyone's so attached to does not help with that. It results in dysfunction and broken homes and addictions and all kinds of horrible things. I, I want people to be able to avoid that, and propositional Christianity does not help people avoid that, all right? And then when I, as I'm exploring, trying to help you avoid the pain that I've gone through, I, I get a lot of pushback, people thinking I'm becoming new age or all this other thing. And that's, that's not what's happening here. Persistent lying, stealing, using aliases, conning others. Uh, maybe they would, persistent lying. You ever ask a Calvinist pastor if they're a Calvinist and say, no, I'm not a Calvinist, but then it turns out that they believe all of the tulip? And they were they know what you meant, but they lie. I, I hear that all the time. We've done videos on that. We've exposed specific pastors for having done that. Okay, personality disorders, recurring. And I'm not saying they actually have a clinical diagnosis. What I'm saying is that ideological possession causes somebody to replicate the symptoms of personality disorders. What I'm trying to say. Um, disregard for the safety of others, impulsive behavior. What are some of the other ones? And so that's. Still cluster, that's cl a couple of other cluster B. Let's see here. And I see these in Christians. This, this is why it's interesting to me is because I see this behavior in Christians and my, <laughs> my thesis, if you will, my proposal is that Christianity is causing these things, causing these behaviors. I'm not saying it's causing a clinical diagnosis. It's causing the replication of these symptoms. Um, unstable and fragile self-image. When people get upset because we use the word philosophy or psychology, that means that your self-image is tied to some kind of group identity that is doing the thinking for you, and you don't have any agency or sovereignty to do the thing yourself, and you are afraid, and you are attached to certain sets of propositions because you're in having mode with your propositions. You're not in being mode and you're attached to these propositions and you think somebody's going to take them away from you. And because you're attached, you're fearful of them being taken away. Then you're angry. Then you get resentful. And that's why you're reacting in such a negative way. You're in having mode rather than being mode. If you were in being mode rather than having mode, you would be able to <laughs> much more easily process some of the things that I'm saying here. That, that happened on this channel. Unstable and intense relationships, up and down moods, uh, in, inability to react, to interact with somebody in a socially acceptable way. We see a lot of that going on, on the, in the chat sometimes. Up and down moods is often as reaction to interpersonal stress, suicidal behavior threats, intense fear of being alone or abandoned. I think that's going on. On feeling ongoing feelings of emptiness you you it, because you feel alone or abandoned you have to identify with a group and outsource your sense making to them frequent or intense displays of anger stress related paranoia that comes and goes 
constantly seeking attention. Histrionic. Um, I think people who want to debate all the time have this. They constantly need the attention of, of being masterful in a debate. They're not actually seeking to make anything better. They need, they feed off the perception of others. That's, that's a big thing in cluster B personality disorders is the attention of others. And there's a whole methodology called gray rock on how to deal with somebody who's in your life that's like that. Excessively emotional, dramatic, speaks dramatically with strong opinions, few facts or details to back them up, easily influenced by others, shallow, rapidly changing emotions, Excessive concern with physical appearance, thinks relationships with others are closer than they really are. Uh, and then the narcissistic stuff. And then there's some, some cluster C ones too. So, I'm, you know, look those up when you get a chance. Look up, some, look up some personality disorder stuff when you get a chance. And what you, what you see is you see this replicated in Christianity. And I'm not trying to make a diagnosis that, these, that people who are acting this way have these issues. I'm not qualified to make that kind of diagnosis. But I am... A person who can say, it seems to me that this is similar to this. And proposition only, Christianity. What happens is you have your propositions in having mode. Like I, I have these, I have them. And then you're not being. The having and being thing. My wife and I talk about this all the time. Instead of having a wife, I'm being a husband. And I'm helping Paula be the best Paula she can be. And whenever we talk, that's my goal. That's really my goal. And whenever she talks to me, she is trying to help me. We contend with each other on purpose because we want to. We want to give each other pushback. That's one of our stated objectives when we started our relationship. And when she talks to me... She contends with me and we, we push back on each other and she's trying to make me be the best version of myself that I can be. So she's not something that I have. And that's, that's categorical thinking where I have this slot in my, in my life called wife and she's filling it and I have, a, you know, an interchangeable part filling that slot in my wife right now. So I have a wife and here's the overlay of expectations that I have here. No, no, no. She's a person. I'm a person. We're trying to be the best kind of person we can be. We're trying to be the most like Jesus Christ that we can be. So we don't have beliefs in having mode. I don't have a wife in having mode. I am being a husband to her. I'm being the best Kevin that I can be and uh, interacting with her so that we can do that. And so when you're in having mode, you become attached and when you're you become attached in pathological ways and when you're attached that way you become fearful which makes you prone to anger which makes you prone to resentment so that's why it's important for christians to be in being mode okay and so the kind of christianity we need needs to be focused up here and balanced across all four kinds of knowing rather so we're not against propositional knowing we're against proposition only knowing. Some people complain. Uh, some people confuse those. They they think that we're against propositional no. no. So there's there's something going on in Christianity that is not good at all. It's very bad, very bad thing going on in Christianity, and I'm concerned about it. And this de-individuation, we people are 
that you don't have any agency or sovereignty and so there's nothing to you and also cluster b people are very insecure and i find a lot of christians are very insecure with this and with life with the phenomenality of 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 life itself and how to interact with life so it's a lot easier to outsource to something like this or to the group to the state group with a statement of faith rather than it is to actually have sovereignty and agency on your own. So in order to participate in the Ephesians 4.16 edification model, that kind of person needs to be the kind of person who can be ash negative. Look that up, the ash conformity experiments. Who can be ash negative? Who can? And then as soon as you say something like that, there's always a Calvinist trying to map you. David Koresh was ash negative. You know, that kind of nonsense. You got to be able to think for yourself. You got to be able to know when the group is trying to pull you um, away from your own morals and values in a way that you would not try to go on your own. All right. Now let's look at a couple of comments here. I think we've looked at most of the comments up to about this point. Uh, they project their self-worth on how worthy they feel they are to others. Unmerited positive regard Christianity works the Christian narcissism. Uh, you were talking about un unmerited positive regard. I would like to have that developed a little bit because what I'm what I'm thinking of is um, the kind of Christians who constantly it's like Christian political correctness, where no matter what you believe, we always have to call each other brother and love each other and be in fellowship with each other. And uh, that kind of thing. I'm not sure if that's what you're talking about here. I, I must always regard you as a Christian brother and love you. Like, um, not sure what that's going on. I need, I need that developed a little bit. So, but that's a very thought-provoking comment. My wife, Dave John says, my wife, psychologist, has brought eight persons to Jesus in the last year. That's great news. Couldn't agree more. It causes broken individuals with zero sovereignty. And I think he's talking about proposition-centric Christianity there. I'm 100% on board with KT on this and feel the burden to walk alongside him in this endeavor. This is great. Uh, appreciate that. Do not outsource your values and morals to me. <laughs> As a, Don't de-individuate. This all leads to typical Baptist litmus tests that have nothing to do with the Bible. Hair length, dress length, correct version of Christianese, hatred of the correct sins. I, yes, exactly, exactly, especially the Christianese. Like, there's people criticizing me for expanding my vocabulary. Is this guy literally saying that Kevin's using words that aren't found anywhere in theological works? I'm like, is, is there some kind of limit on what kind of words can be used? <laughs> really? That makes me the devil. I'm trying to I'm trying to help people not hurt and not suffer. That's what I'm trying to do. And the words that are in theology works do not do that. All right. So go off and be ignorant on your own. While correct doctrine is left out in the wind, you are complimenting with and e. I don't know what that means. Churchianity. Yes. Kevin, this channel is answering questions I've had for years. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that feedback. Um, wayward brother. It's a misrendering of agape. And that might be a comment about the other comment up there. Yeah, yes. Um, agape is to 
like I was talking about with me and Paula earlier, we are contending with each other in being mode to try to help each other along our journey to be the best versions of ourselves that we can be, to continue pressing forward and to do whatever I need to do to take responsibility and bear the cost of whatever I need to do to help myself and those around me become better versions of themselves. That's agape rather than just this, uh, this unmerited positive regard, as it said. All right, we're done. Um, we're about hour, uh, almost an hour and 17 minutes in, according to the clock that I have going over here. And today we talked about de-individuation. And very quickly, um, diffusion of responsibility, anonymity, suggestibility, and the thing I want you to leave you with is responsibility. How much responsibility can you take for your own sovereignty um, and your own agency? And the more agent, the more responsibility you can take, the more you'll be able to listen to somebody express concepts that are new to you, and you will feel the capacity to discern those things without feeling threatened by them, without being insecure and feeling threatened and splitting, doing the black and white thing. And I would like to see you grow in this area of responsibility, becoming more uh, agentic and sovereign within your own morals and your own moral morality and value structure where you know where you stand. And I want you to be less propositionally centric and more in tune with the other kinds of knowing that we have and, and have some kind of sovereignty across all four kinds of knowing, which is what we want. Churches are full of broken people who need real help and answers. As long as they say the right things and do the right things, they are treated as a whole godly people while internally they remain broken. That's exactly right. Um, and for that reason, they're causing more problems than they are helping. And so I think, I think propositional Christianity is one of the problems people need to be delivered from. Greetings from Dubai. Your channel is a breath of fresh air. And the YouTube landscape of propositional Christianity, thank you for your ministry. I appreciate that feedback. This was great. Can't wait to expand on this de-individuation concept as an aspect of this crisis. And yeah, I think it's a great idea to do a video on the meaning crisis and how propositional Christianity leads to nihilism and isn't helping anybody. And that is one of the things from which people need to be delivered uh, to Christ, not propositional Christianity. We're not against Christianity. We're against propositional-centric Christianity. Thanks for watching. May the Lord bless you. And good day.